Welcome to session 48 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 17th of February. Today we're looking at Numbers 25 to 27 and Psalm 48. But so far in Numbers we've read that the Israelites made the final preparations to leave Sinai. The journey to the Promised Land, the stop in the wilderness of Paran where the people rebel and decide not to enter the land, the journey back into the wilderness as we waited for the old generation to pass, and then them settling in the plains of Moab. We read through all the preparations and new instructions that seemed like random rules, but were actually a retelling of Genesis 1 to 9. Israel was to be like a new creation, learning from the mistakes of the first time around. We then read as Israel set off, established and ordered by God, only to immediately complain. Then Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, challenged whether Moses was really hearing from God. After that, the Israelites arrived in the wilderness of Paran, just outside Canaan. Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land, and 10 of the 12 complained that the land was filled with the descendants of the Nephilim, and that they had no chance. God then tells them that none of this generation will enter the Promised Land. This was followed by the Levites rebelling under Korah. So we then read how the people set off back into the wilderness to continue to be tested by God until the old generation passed. The people complained and Moses this time rebelled a little, losing his spot in the promised land. They fought some battles and complained some more, and more of the old generation died. In winning some battles, the Israelites also claimed some land. Yesterday, we read as they settled in the plains of Moab. There they were seen by Balak, the king of Moab, who hired a foreign sorcerer, Balaam, to curse Israel. But God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel, and instead Balaam blessed Israel three times and then cursed all their enemies. So this is where we pick up in Numbers 25 to 27. Once again, the people decide to turn from God. You would think by now they would have learnt, but obviously not. This time they get sexually involved with the women of other nations, and these women convince the Israelite men to worship their foreign gods. We've mentioned it before, but there is often a connection between sexual immorality and worshipping of false gods in the Bible. The two nations mentioned are the Moabites, who we've mentioned previously, and the Midianites. These guys were descendants of Abraham's second wife, Keturah. Have a look at Genesis 25, verses 1 to 2. This story is very similar to the golden calf at Mount Sinai. The people choose to worship something other than God, and the chosen few decide to purge the nation of this sin by killing the offenders. This time round, we have Phineas, who hunts down a man having an affair with a foreign woman and kills them both. With this rebellion, we see a further 24,000 people die. But in Phineas, we see a glimpse of hope for the future generation. He is loyal and obedient to God, and so God commits that his descendants will be part of the priesthood after him. But this is the last rebellion we see in Numbers. While it's not particularly clear, since the people have left Sinai, time has been passing. The stories of the last few chapters are spread out across 40 years, the time that the people were told they would wander in the wilderness. With this last rebellion, we see the last few that were unfaithful to God pass away. What is left is the new, younger and faithful generation. So from here we see them remind themselves of what God has said over them and begin to enter the land. The first thing the people do is hold a new census. Before they step into the new land, they need to know how many people are in each tribe. So when they hand out the land, they can give more land to bigger tribes so everyone has enough. During the census, an issue is raised. Up until this point, inheritance is always passed to the oldest son. But what happens to the land when a man dies without sons, but has 
daughters. Some daughters raised this question to Moses, who brought it before God, and who told the people that in cases where there are only daughters, the property then belongs to the daughters. The laws that the people had been given up until this point were not all-encompassing. They covered the main points and clearly showed the heart of God and the kind of principles he wanted his people to live by. For specific situations, they needed to come specifically to God for an answer. If you remember back to Numbers 9, we had a gap in the law about the Passover and those who were unclean. Here we get another gap in the law, an example of how it should be handled. We believe that the Bible is the complete word of God and that it is relevant to our lives. But sometimes there are specific situations that the Bible doesn't give an exact answer to. This is where we need to learn the principle that the Bible lays out, the heart of God that the Bible shows us, and then bring all that with our specific situation to God in prayer. This requires real maturity and wisdom. Some people will ignore this and try to apply certain biblical rules to every situation. In some cases, situations where they don't really fit and then actually do more damage. Other people might take these ideas and bend it to get legitimate rules to no longer apply to them. So take all of this with a pinch of salt. Yes, the Bible is good and true and God's desire for our life. But sometimes we need to take all of that in prayer for specific situations. Finally, we get who is to replace Moses after he is gone. Joshua. He is described as a man in whom is the spirit. That's Numbers 27 verse 18. And is charged with overseeing the people as though they were like sheep. In Joshua, we're meant to see a new Adam. Just as Adam was filled with the spirit of God and given responsibility to oversee all the animals, now Joshua has the spirit of God and is given responsibility to oversee all the Israelites. That's Numbers 25 to 27. Now let's look at Psalm 48. This psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah and falls into the category of praise psalm. More specifically, it is a psalm of Zion, praising God's holy city. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we start with the first half of verse 1, an introductory praise to God. We then get to the second half of verse 1 all the way to verse 8, a celebration of Zion. Verses 9 to 11, praise to God. And verses 12 to 14, a walk around God's holy city. The psalm opens with praise to God. This sets the tone of the psalm, which then goes on to look at a specific part of God's greatness, God's holy mountain city, Zion. The layers of imagery around the term Zion are many. The capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, is sometimes referred to as Zion. Have a look at 2 Samuel 5, verse 7. But Zion is also described as being a mountain, as mountains were where people encountered God's presence. Think Abraham going up to a mountain to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, or Moses going up with a mountain to get the laws from God in Exodus 19. Because of all this, Zion becomes the future hope of God's people. One day there will be a city that is on a mountain where everyone is in God's presence forever. It will be a new Garden of Eden, a city temple on a mountain. We see this imagery picked up in Revelation 21 verses 9 to 27. It may be that this will be a literal city, or that this is a metaphor for what it will be like to live in God's presence. Either way, it's this imagery and hope that are the focus of this psalm. This city would be like a fortress to God's people and a source of fear to their enemies. The psalmist praised God for his faithfulness and love in his city temple. The love will reach out so that people across the earth will praise him. The psalmist then calls out to those listening to walk around Zion. This may have been a call to familiarise yourself with God's presence. As you consider the ramparts and citadels, this becomes a metaphor for taking time to know God. The better you know God, the better you can tell others about him. In this psalm, we see how the ancient Israelites ground their spiritual encounters in visual imagery 
to help them better understand them. We also see the desire to be in God's presence.